0: Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. This week, we'll see if we loved, actually, our next-level Benoffi pie and introduce a seasonal classic with an intriguing backstory, a fresh pear pie. We'll also talk all things crust, Whether single, double, lattice, or crumb topped, we'll pull into the intimidation station and share our techniques and favorite recipes to help you master the pastry. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk.
1: Bevan, I don't often spend a lot of time on Twitter for social media. Yeah. I have to tell you about something I got embroiled in over the holidays. Oh,
0: <laughs> gosh. Andrea, have you been on in a Twitter war? What's going on?
1: I personally was not involved in the Twitter war, but I was following one. and It, it was just so funny, and it really applies well in pie month, so I wanted to share it. Oh oh my gosh, can't wait. You might recall we talked about a man named Joe Posnanski back in, was that episode 78 when we talked about pixie food? Pixie food. Yeah. Food that you had as a child and you remember as fabulous, and when you taste it as an adult, you realize it's quite disgusting. Oh yeah. He was having a debate with another man named Ken Tremendous. I don't know anything about these two men other than this debate, so let me just say this is... My only experience with them is with this particular issue. And they started a war. One took the stand, hot fruit is disgusting. And the other took the stand, fruit pie is delicious.
0: I have so many questions Um, (laughs) already.
1: My first question for you is, if you had to pick one of those, hot Mm -hmm. fruit is disgusting or fruit Uh pie is delicious, where would you fall?
0: Of course, I would fall on the uh, fruit pie is delicious. I
1: figured you would,
0: and most people did. They actually set it up as
1: a fundraiser for Crohn's Foundation, and they had people order shirts to represent their position. Okay. They ended up with 226 people ordering the fruit pie is delicious. Yes. Versus 153 ordering hot fruit is disgusting. But I have to say, (laughs) they didn't actually fully represent my position, but I actually am a little bit on the hot fruit as disgusting when it comes
0: to one particular fruit. Just one. Is it apple? It is. (laughs) I thought I remembered that about you. But here's my question about this Twitter war. Why does it have to be either or? I mean, can't you have a fruit pie but have it cold? Like how do you feel about apple pie that's cold?
1: That is what a lot of people weighed in with. They said, you've set this up as a false dichotomy with the either or, because hot fruit is disgusting, but cold apple pie is one of the best things in the world is what a lot of people said. No, I I still don't like, I don't like cooked apples. I mean, that's just what it comes down to, hot or cold. I like raw apples, but I like cooked fruit and raw fruit. And um, I just thought it was fascinating that people have
0: such strong opinions about cooked fruit. Now, here's my other question that has nothing to do with fruit or pie. Is Ken Tremendous? Is that his real name? I'm guessing not. Okay. (laughs) Again, I don't follow them for anything other than
1: the fruit debate. So I think they're sports writers or politician writers or something. I mean, I I spend very little time on Twitter. I'm too verbose for that particular social media platform. So I need places where I can write much longer thoughts like Facebook. So (laughs)
0: I mean, just your answer to this very question has proven that, hasn't it? Exactly. I know. I know. Well, thank you for keeping us surprised of the the fruit pie related Twitters out there, tweets out there. I did want to
1: make sure that people are aware of that raging debate. It might come up when we introduce our recipe this week. So stay tuned.
0: Well, before we do that, Andrea, we've got a pretty major holiday coming up this week. Yes, we do. It is a Valentine's Day on the 14th, and we just wanted to run down a few recipes that Folks, if you are looking through our back catalog, that might be good for you and your sweeties. Andrea, we had such a great time and I would be remiss if I did not mention our raspberry flummery from way, way back in episode 13.
1: Yeah, that's one of the first ones that actually came to
0: mind for me because of the color. Yes. And uses raspberries I think, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't we both use a combination of maybe some frozen and fresh raspberries in that? Like maybe garnished with some fresh but used some frozen to make it. I can't remember but it is such a deep beautiful red color and Mm -hmm. has a really vibrant raspberry taste and is a really historic and fun recipe too. So give that one a try. But what about our bread and butter pudding with salted caramel whiskey butter sauce from episode 19? Also so delicious. Have you noticed how often the words salted caramel whiskey butter sauce show
1: up in our recipes? It's true. (laughs) I'm noticing a trend. If
0: if those words are included, we're, we're on it. But also, Andrea, our plum meringue that we did a little more recently back in episode 92, that was such a fun bake, had the cooked fruit, don't tell Ken Tremendous, on the bottom, but then it had that billowing meringue topping. And that was just so unique and fun, was one of my favorites. And so easy. Yeah, that's a good one. Now, maybe you want to surprise your sweetie with a little breakfast in bed. So of course, you cannot go wrong with the jalapeno cheddar scones from episode 24. Or our bagels from episode 100, I would be very happy to be woken up with either of those on Valentine's Day. I'd be happy to be woken up with them, but
1: and I don't want to start another war, but I do want to go on the record that I think breakfast in bed is disgusting, <laughs> and if anyone ever gave me scones or bagels, both of which have a <laughs> massive amount of crumbs, and asked me to eat in bed, I would be so angry.
0: Okay, all right, I will remember that. Uh, Maybe you're cooking for some kids this Valentine's Day, and ones that we know have been really popular not only with our own kids but with listeners' children uh, were the sugar cookie bars from episode 44. Oh, yeah. Listener Carolyn's boys in particular, I think they make them with her, but they also really love eating those. In my house, the moist chocolate cake from episode 61.5 is a huge hit, very easy. Oh, a nice bundt cake, yeah. Yes. And then my second season blue ribbon from episode 77 is Prince Harry's Caramel Banana Cake. That might be the one that I'm going for. Maybe not your traditional treat you think of for Valentine's with chocolate and flowers, but one of my kids' favorites and my husband's too. So that might be where I am caramelizing this Valentine's Day. We shall see.
1: Well, and I think it's important if you're trying to do something nice for people that you're giving them what they want, not necessarily what the traditional world says you should do on Valentine's Day. I'm not a huge fan of roses, for example. So, you know, that would not be the flower to bring home to me on Valentine's Day. If anyone's listening, just wanted to throw that
0: out there. (laughs) And you're right, that's what it's all about, isn't it?
1: Well, Stefan, this week's recipe is the Next Level Banoffee Pie, and it came from BBC Good Food. It is my first experience with banoffee pie, but you, living in London, I'm sure have a lot more experience. So why don't you start it off and tell us how it turned out for you?
0: So the BBC Good Food is calling this their Next Level Banoffee Pie, and we spoke a little bit about why that would be considered maybe a little bit pumped up or more dramatic than a traditional banoffee pie. And there were a few places. The first is the crust. You are using a hobnob, a chocolate hobnob, which is an oaty biscuit with a chocolate coating. And I think in a normal banafi pie, you might just do a more standard graham cracker. So you've got that down at the bottom. The second biggie is that you are roasting your bananas with a little lime juice and a traditional banoffee might call for just a sliced but fresh banana. And you have your lay of caramel. That's all very standard, topped with some peanut butter whipping cream. Andrea, I think all of these components by themselves were very delicious. I think together they were good, but I had some weird texture things that ultimately influenced my overall thoughts about this pie. So,
1: Oh, interesting. I'm, I'm curious. Texture in terms of the crust or the filling or the peanut butter topping?
0: Yeah, I had no problem with the crust. I had my hobnobs. Those whizzed up great. And I used a ceramic pie dish. My fluted tart pan was too big for this one. So just did a ceramic pie dish that had some nice tall sides. I thought that crust came together really nicely. It was very easy to work with probably doing to the copious amounts of butter in there. I
1: used a ceramic pie dish as well, my deep dish, ceramic pie dish. Okay. And I think I mentioned on last week's episode, I couldn't find the dark chocolate hobnobs. So I got the milk chocolate. And the thing that I thought was so fabulous is the recipe calls for 262 grams. And my pack was 287 grams, which meant I got to eat (laughs) two of the Hobnobs and um, not feel like I was stealing from the recipe. So I was super excited about that.
0: And I want to go on the record and say Hobnobs might be one of my new favorite cookies. Aren't they so good? They are so good. We buy them much too regularly. And they are. I always can convince myself that they're a little healthy because they have the oaty fiber bottom and then just the, (laughs) the chocolate top. So yeah, those are great. Yeah, now I'm understanding maybe why my grocery
1: store was sold out on those. Mm. They're fabulous.
0: I think the roasted banana is what gave me the most trouble here, Andrea. And it does call for slightly overripe bananas. My roasted bananas, that was a fairly easy process. You're doing that with some light brown soft sugar and a little bit of lime juice there to give some zing. Maybe my bananas were too ripe. They just were so liquidy. How did your texture turn out in that step?
1: Oh, that's interesting. My bananas were so ripe, they were almost black, but they roasted up just fine. Yeah. I put them on parchment paper. I roasted them. I left them sitting on the counter for a while. And, you know, then when I went to mash them, there was a lot of liquid on the parchment paper, but I Mm -hmm. just left it there and just, you know, pulled the bananas up and mashed away at them. And I didn't find them too liquidy. It was just a sort of a a smashy banana mixture.
0: That's what I was really hoping for, too. But then in the next step, when you have your caramel, my caramel really didn't want to set. And I used exactly what was called for in this recipe, which is a canned caramel. And here in England, it's called a carnation cooking caramel. So I knew I had the right ingredient going in. And I was just thinking if maybe it was that play of the two ripe bananas with the caramel that was allowing for it to be a little too liquidy. Did you have any issues with your caramel, Andrea? No, not at all. So you you spread your bananas
1: over your crumb base. Yep. And then you heated your caramel. Yes. And still, when you poured it in, you think the caramel had trouble setting? I do.
0: But here is my other issue. Now, this recipe calls for 80 grams of banana chips. Mm-hmm. And in last episode, I revealed I do not care for banana chips. You did. So I thought, no problem. I can leave these out. Well, I'm wondering Um. if leaving them out, maybe putting them in, was just enough extra scaffolding for the caramel that when I didn't have that, it really suffered. That must be it. Did you use banana chips? Oh, yeah.
1: I definitely used the banana chips. I used exactly 80 grams and crushed those up. And I'm wondering if it's not even just the scaffolding or, you know, the fact that you have the chips. But remember, we talked about sort of that gooey texture on banana chips. Maybe there is something when you put them into that hot caramel that mm, sort of melts off the banana chips and just helps them set up a little bit more.
0: Could be almost like a pectin or some kind of like natural fiber. Yes. Yes. That's what I'm thinking. It really could be. Then... You have the whipping cream, which is with the peanut butter. I think I'm just going to make all my whipping cream with peanut butter from now on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That would also get a vote in my household. I think the the peanut butter whipping cream, especially with my husband who loves peanut butter more than anything, and he's constantly – asking me to put peanut butter in things where I yes. think it doesn't belong. <laughs> this this was really one of those times and I didn't tell him and he took his first bite and he looked at me and his eyes just lit up and he said, I know. Oh,
0: "Peanut butter." Oh, it was so <laughs> delicious. You know, I I give the flavor on everything here an A. I am motivated enough by everything that I want to play around and figure out what happened with my bananas or maybe with the caramel. Maybe I'll just try some fresh bananas, maybe mixing that into the caramel. I think it's forgiving enough. I think it's make ahead enough. You could do many of these things in steps. It does have to chill. So I am motivated to go back to this recipe and try it again because I think flavor-wise it really worked.
1: And I'm wondering, the other thing that obviously is different for us is this tin of caramel. So you said yours was called a cooking caramel. I told you that I found mine on the Hispanic aisle in the grocery store, and it was called dulce de leche. Mm -hmm. And in the instruction where it says, tip it into a saucepan, bring to a simmer and bubble for a few minutes to thicken – I remember thinking to myself, well, this is odd because this stuff is already so incredibly thick. Yeah. So I'm wondering if it really was sort of a different caramel that I had because it was so thick. I mean, I had to scrape it out of the tin to even get it into the pan.
0: I mean, I definitely had to scrape mine as well, but it was runny. It was like I I would call it a runny caramel.
1: Yeah, no, mine was not even runny. Mine, mine Mine was like a thick pudding. And I had to, you know, use a spoon. I I could have held that can upside down over the saucepan forever and nothing was coming out.
0: Well, perhaps the texture was not a mistake. Maybe this is exactly how it should have been. Mine set
1: up beautifully. So I did like the texture. I, you know, just had a great experience with this. I told you how much my husband loved it. I absolutely loved it. I do think this is the first time I've ever made a dessert where I had a smashed banana layer as opposed to a sliced banana layer. Yes,
0: exactly. And
1: I think I really liked that. Uh, um, I don't know. It just it just felt better. You didn't feel like you were getting these kind of chunks of banana. Yes. It was just more of a general banana flavor. It was absolutely wonderful on day one. Five star. My husband is prone to superlatives. He has previously said the butterscotch curry pie we made was the best pie ever in the world. Yes. Then I think one summer he said the strawberry rhubarb pie was the best pie we've ever made in the world. He has now transferred his (laughs) allegiance to the next level (laughs) Banoffee pie that this is absolutely the best pie he's ever had in his life. On day two... And usually I give my pies away, but I couldn't because uh, he was so obsessed with this. Yeah. So on day one, best pie ever. On day two, same thing, best pie ever. And he asked me to please get rid of it because he oh. was like, if you don't get rid of it, I'm going to eat the whole eat thing. Eat it all. Yes. Yes. So right before I discarded it on day three, I thought, oh, I'll just take a bite. And lo and behold, <laughs> uh, that smashed banana layer does not hold up to day three. Okay, so it had kind of disappeared. I don't know how else to describe it, but and the crust was not soggy, but there was just sort of an off flavor. So mm-hmm. that's just my only caution on this fabulous pie is I do think you want to go ahead and eat it on day one or day two. It does require a four hour chilling time to set. and I did I made it in the morning. And I served it that night. So I think mine actually set for six to eight hours before I cut into it and served it. And it sliced beautifully, and it set up beautifully, and it was great the next day. But I wouldn't hang on to it until day three or beyond.
0: I think if you can lick whatever texture issues that I had, you're not going to have it on that third day. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) yeah, the flavors are so great and the components all really work. So um, listeners, if you have made this or a similar recipe that maybe calls for a caramel or a cooked banana, let me know what you think might've, might've happened here. In the meantime, I'm going to play around with uh, some variations because I am very motivated to do it. It was really tasty and I'm glad you liked it too. Yes. Thank you for my introduction
1: to banoffee pie. I'm thinking on my next visit to London that I would like to have some while I'm there because now that I've made one, it'd be fun to kind of try what they sell just in the regular, you know, bakery or pastry shop.
0: We can make that happen. And it's also interesting here that they'll have those banoffee flavors, but they'll have like a banoffee blondie or a banoffee Bake tart or something else that's not technically a pie, but has those caramel banana flavors too. So Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's
1: just such a lovely combination. So I say do anything you can with it.
0: <laughs> well, next up we're hoping is another winner, our second entry into our third annual pie month, and that is a fresh pear pie with a lattice top crust. This comes to us from a website called The Spruce Eats. We wanted to do a fruit pie. We also wanted to adhere to one of our 19 for 19 baking resolutions, which is to cook in season. So a little harder to do a fruit pie when it is the middle of February. It is. Andrea, we have landed on a pear pie. Have you ever made a pear pie?
1: I have been making a pear bourbon pie with a crumble topping from Joy the Baker for quite a while. But that's the only one I've ever made, and I really like it. And it goes back to my cooked fruit debate. I don't understand why I liked cooked pears and not cooked apples because they're so similar to me, but
0: um, that's just how I am. Well, Andrea, you may be more heritage more old-fashioned than you think? Because... <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. So longtime listeners will know that one of my very favorite cookbooks of all time is by Richard Sachs, and it's called Classic Home Desserts. And it is this really fun and thorough walk through all kinds of American desserts and the history of them. And according to Richard... Pear pie was actually the all American favorite pie for many, many years before the apple kind of took that title and usurped its place on the podium. Oh. Pears are one of the oldest cultivated crops and were actually one of the first fruit trees cultivated in North America. They were so prevalent and easy to grow that many, many people had pears where they might not have apples. So that is what was allowing them to do all kinds of things with them, including make the pie. Okay. Now, in more modern times, I think they have a more temperamental personality or a temperamental stereotype than maybe an apple. They can be watery, they can bruise easily, there's not as many varieties, and so that might be why folks are not as keen to try a pear pie, but we're hoping to reverse that a little bit with this version. I've never made a pear pie, so I'm really looking forward to it. I think another thing
1: with pears that I read about recently was that, unlike apples, they need to ripen. Yes. And more and more consumers want to buy pears already ripened so they can buy the pear, take it home, and eat it just like they could with an apple. Yes. But then, of course, you run into problems because if you're shipping a pear that's ready to eat, it's going to, you know, it's too eas- more easily bruise right. and have the cuts and that sort of thing. So, Stefan, back when we made a uh, dessert with apricot, you made the comment that you were spoiled for cho- choice Yes. in terms of which apricot <laughs> – I know that I am going to be spoiled for choice when it comes to pears. I mean, Pacific Northwest and pears, we have so many. We have the Comice. We have the d'anjou, We have the Red Anjou. Yep. We have the Bartlett. We have the Bosque. So I personally am thinking where it says five fresh pears, I'm going to try a mixture of pears. Okay. So I wanted to run that by you and see if you approved of that.
0: I do approve. And I also know why you have so much choice. And that's because Washington State leads the world in pear production.
1: Oh, I did not know that. I would have guessed Oregon.
0: And I would have guessed Apple, right? Again, oh, it's yeah. it's apple and it may be for Apple as well, but but you don't hear about the pear production quite as much either. So Good Well, I was thinking similar to
1: Apple, you know, I think apple pies are best when you mix the apples. Yeah. So you have a mixture of some of the ones that are good for baking versus ones that are good for eating. I don't know that I have an opinion on pears in terms of ones that are better for baking than for eating. I tend to just buy the pears and eat them. Yeah. But I do just think a mixture is going to be more fun. I also wanted your permission to add a different (laughs) spice, and that is cardamom, because in my mind, pear and cardamom together are just two of the best flavors in the world.
0: Well, you go for it, permission granted, and I will go with cinnamon as written, and let's compare notes next week. Thank you. I'm so excited.
1: I appreciate you allowing me to experiment a little bit. I'm really, really excited about this particular recipe. And I have looked at the Spruce Eats before, but I think this might be one of my first recipes that I've made from them. So I'm really excited about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So just a few notes on the recipe. If you follow their pastry crust, I think I'm going to here. It's an all-butter crust. And then the filling, Andrea, it says five fresh pears. Those kind of vague (laughs) ingredients always make me, you know, how big is your pear? What type do you have? So I might fiddle around or have some extras on hand if that's not looking like enough to fill my my dish. What are you thinking there? I think that's really smart.
1: Whenever they don't tell you, you know, what the final weight should be on the pear's, And they don't specify which type of pie pan you're going to use. Also true. Yep. In number five, they don't say yes. Right. Then I think it's really important to have extra on hand. And I think it's really important to taste your filling. Because if you end up only using four pears, you might not need as much sugar. If you end up using six pears, you might need a little bit more. So definitely use this recipe as a guideline, not necessarily hard and fast, have to do it that way. Another thing that I'm going to recommend on the pastry, I am going to follow this pastry recipe because it is a great all-butter crust, and I like making that occasionally. Mm -hmm. But whenever I make a crust with all-butter, and it is typically two sticks or eight ounces or 16 tablespoons, I always cut back to 14 tablespoons. Otherwise, I find that it just becomes this bubbly, buttery mess, and it boils over and just makes a big mess. And I haven't noticed a big difference in the taste of the pastry. Okay. So what I'm going to do is save those two tablespoons that would normally go in the pastry. And you'll notice in the filling, they say that you need two tablespoons of butter, and you're going to cut it into small pieces and dot the filling. So I'm going to save those two tablespoons back and use those in the filling. And I've just had better success with my all butter crust cutting back a little on the butter.
0: Okay, good point. I know exactly what you're talking about. It just gets a little greasy yeah Mm -hmm. okay okay I do want to point something else out in step seven now normally when I'm making a fruit pie I'm combining my sugar and my spices and tossing it with the fruit but here you put the unadorned fruit into the pastry crust and then you sprinkle the sugar the flour cinnamon and a little salt over the pears I've never done that in a pie have you I've never done that.
1: I did read this recipe, and so I would like um, some appreciation for that. Because, um, you know, as, <laughs> as you know, normally, normally <laughs> I would not read all the way through step seven before actually making something. And so it's funny you're bringing that up because I wrote mix first question mark. Yep. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this instruction because I don't want plain pear slices at the bottom of a potentially super sugary pear slice at the top. So I might break the rules on step seven and mix that all up first. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I've never seen that though. That's a new one for me. I'm not sure how I'm going to play that one yet. So we'll see next week on that too. Yep. Finally, Andrea, this is a lattice crust pie. I know you are a big fan of the lattice. But I think that this would be another great place to use that crumble topping we love from Kate McDermott and Art of the Pie.
1: Yes, that Kate McDermott crumble I absolutely love. I might still have some in my freezer, although I often take a little (laughs) tablespoon or two, so there might not be enough. And there is a variation mentioned in this recipe for a crumble topping. So if you find a lattice intimidating, go ahead and do a crumble. I think it will be absolutely delicious.
0: So, we are going to post both of those recipes. That was the next level banoffee pie, which got thumbs up all around from the BBC Good Food. And this week's bake along, which is the fresh pear pie from the Spruce Eats. We will put that in the show notes for this episode, episode 111. Wow, I loved saying that. <laughs> On preheatedpodcast.com. <laughs>
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we're now approaching Intimidation Station, Pie Crust Branch. Please ensure you have all your belongings, rolling pins, all-purpose flour, and leaf lard with you, and step carefully onto the platform. Oh, and be sure
0: to mind the gap. Andrea, whenever we tell people we're doing a whole month of pie, they inevitably tell us how scared they are to tackle the crust. It's
1: true, and it's usually not the filling that they're nervous about. It's certainly not the eating the pie (laughs) that scares people away. It's always that crust. So we thought this was a good time to pull back into Intimidation Station and get everything sorted from an ingredient and baking perspective mostly. We'll talk about tackling the tools you might need more in depth next week.
0: So let's go. For crust to work, no matter what recipe you love, and we'll get to that in a minute— you need four basic ingredients. That's it, flour, water, salt, and fat. Your fat can be lard, shortening, butter, or a combo of these. And your crust has to
1: fulfill several duties for something that contains only these four ingredients. It needs to be flaky but firm, strong but not tough, and hopefully impart a complementary flavor to whatever filling it's holding. That's
0: right. It's not necessarily a complicated recipe, but it is one of those things that you have to get right at every step or there's no going back. First, you cut your fat into your flour, and there are several ways to do this. I've rediscovered the joys of my handheld pastry cutter, which looks something like a large, rounded, four-tined fork. I can see and feel up close how my dough is coming together. Andrea, I think you're a fan of using your food processor.
1: I am, mainly because I think once you're making crust, it's just as easy to make, you know, four recipes instead of one. True. So the food processor makes that really easy. It's really important not to overwork your dough, though, when you use your food processor. And I took a pastry class once from a French chef, and she warned us, never pulse your pie crust more than 30 times total. So I always keep that in mind and keep count as I'm making it. And of course, what kind of fat you use is open for endless debate, and there are pros and cons to each. Butter has arguably the best flavor, but it can be hard to work with, as the melting point is lower than other popular pie crust fats. And because it has a high water content, it
0: can turn your crust a little bit leathery. For years, I exclusively made shortening crusts. The pros here, aside from it being a vegetarian option, are that it's inexpensive and easy to work with, and produces a very flaky crust but it has no flavor at all, which can seem like a missed opportunity.
1: I think leaf lard is the best of both worlds. It's easy to work with and it creates a flaky pastry like shortening. And if you mix it with butter like I do in my go-to recipe, Mary Beth's reliable pie crust, you get amazing flavor from the butter and flakiness from the leaf lard.
0: So does it have to be leaf lard or can you use any type of lard? I know I've seen regular lard in my grocery store refrigerated shelves.
1: Yeah. Alas, it must be leaf lard. <laughs> um, I've, I've tried the other and you get a bit of porky flavor oh. that most of us don't want in our pies, at least not, okay. you know, in our sweet pies. Right. Leaf lard is a little bit harder to track down and it has a resulting price tag of something being a little bit more precious and obviously it won't work if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, but it is my number one fat that I love to use.
0: And I keep coming back to a butter-shortening combo that's really similar to Ina Garten's classic. So whichever method you prefer, how well you incorporate your fat into your flour has a knock-on effect for the next step, how much water you'll need to add to make it cohere. You've heard us talk in the past about humidity being one reason that water levels can differ from one batch of pie crust to the next. But over at Serious Eats, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt suggests that's not such a huge factor after all. Instead, he says the amount of liquid you add depends almost entirely on how well that fat is incorporated. If you've cut your fat too small, you won't have to add enough water, and your pastry could turn crumbly or sandy. But if you don't cut it in well enough, you'll have to add more water, which can make your crust tough.
1: I've always followed the rule of cutting my fat in until I have pieces that are mostly the size of peas, although it's okay if there's a few the size of Mm. almonds. And I find, too, that it's important to make sure my water is iced. In fact, I think it's even better if all of your ingredients are cold. So I personally store my pie flour in the freezer, so it's always nice and chilly. And if you pull your flour from the pantry, you could always pop your flour-fat mixture back into the freezer for a bit to firm up if you think it's gotten a little too soft.
0: That's right, because you really don't want any of that fat melting until it hits that hot oven. So you want to be very ginger and incorporate your liquid into the flour-fat combo just till it's combined. You could use your food processor and pulse it, or toss the flour with a fork or rubber spatula. At this point, once the dough sticks together into a cohesive ball, both of us form our pastry into discs cover with cling film, and leave in the fridge for a while. This helps the gluten relax and the fat firm up again before you roll out the dough. Once your dough is
1: chilled, and that can go anywhere from 30 minutes to three days in the fridge, in my experience, you want to turn it out onto a well-floured surface Stefan, we both like rolling on marble surfaces, but if you don't have a marble countertop, you can buy a board or even a remnant at a home goods store or a resale site that you can pull out whenever you need.
0: And how do we roll? With our tapered rolling (laughs) pins, also known as French rolling pins. For our money, these provide the best balance and ease. When maneuvering your dough into your pie tin, try not to stretch your crust. But remember, you are the only person who will ever know what the bottom of your pie crust truly looks like. So if your dough tears or you just can't maneuver it into place, feel free to make a patchwork crust and take bits and pieces from wherever you need to cover the bottoms and sides. Keep a bowl of water handy and use it to patch. The cold water acts like glue and will make the pieces stick together nicely.
1: Now we're on to the design. Pie crust can come in all kinds of variations, double crust, single crust, single crust with a crumble topping, double crust with a lattice crust. And then there's the par bake when you partially bake a crust before adding filling and cooking it through, and the blind bake when you bake a crust without any filling inside at all. You'd most often use this for a custard or a cream pie.
0: And we're doing a variety of recipes this month to try our hand at almost all of these. You just heard us introduce this week's pear pie, which is a double-crust lattice but could also be made with a crumble top. And once again,
1: our favorite crumble right now comes from Kate McDermott's Art of the Pie book. It makes a nice hefty amount, and you can store it in your freezer if you have leftovers. I personally love it on fruit pies, and as I admitted earlier, I will sometimes sneak a tiny handful for a snack. (laughs)
0: And Andrea, speaking of fruit pies, you explained how to tackle lattice, which is a woven crust technique, back in episode 90 when we were doing our classic peach pie during sensational stone fruit month. We've also got a double crust savory pie coming up at the end of this month, and next week's Bake Along is going to call for a par-baked single crust.
1: Yes, and of all of these crusts we're talking about, I think it's the blind and the bakes that really trip people, and I'm including you and me <laughs> in that category. Up. Yes. So let's talk about these two a little bit more. Many of the techniques are the same. In a par or a blind bake, you're going to roll out your dough, you'll fit it into your pie dish, you'll crimp the edges, and then you usually prick the sides and the bottom with a fork so that any steam or air can be let out and stop the bake crust from bubbling
0: up. You'll have best success with par or blind baking if you use pie weights. These can be dried beans or rice, ceramic weights, or stainless steel ropes that coil into the bottom of your pan and crawl up the sides. Whatever you use, you want it to be able to press all around that crust so it stays in place, doesn't slip down, and essentially molds itself into place as it bakes.
1: We've both been loving using sugar in our blind bakes. And as always, a shout out to listener Andrea in Germany for changing our lives (laughs) with this suggestion. But I do want to make a few important points. Before you put the sugar in, you must align the crust with parchment or foil. Or else you'll just have this sticky sugar-filled crust on your hands. Stefan, you and I are fine with reusing that sugar in subsequent blind bakes. Or in fact, I use that toasted sugar in recipes that I think really benefit from Caramelized sugar, but some people really don't like the idea of reusing this ingredient from a food safety standpoint And so they might find this particular method wasteful. So as always just use the tool that you like the best. That's right
0: One thing I've been struggling with lately is the dreaded slump. Yeah No matter which pie weight option I choose my sides slip down if this is a blind bake they can collapse all the way down onto the weights if it's a partial bake, they can fall into the filling. It's not pretty. It means my crust doesn't cook properly. And neither the crust or the filling taste their best since they're cooking into one another where they shouldn't be. I had a very ugly scene last November oh, no. for Thanksgiving pies. And I vowed never to go back to that dark place. <laughs> but I cannot seem to remedy it.
1: Oh, we've got to fix this. Thanksgiving should be a, a happy, happy time. Happy. <laughs> No, I, I struggle with this as well. And one thing I'd like to recommend mm-hmm. is a short but really helpful video from our friend, Christopher Kimball, over at Milk Street okay. Radio. And he says if you follow a few simple tips, it can really cut down on shrinkage. So first, you do want to line that pastry with a heavy-duty tin foil. Then put in the pound of ceramic weights, or dried beans, or rice. Mm -hmm. Then refrigerate the whole thing for 30 minutes, and then freeze it for another 15. Bake at 375 for 25 minutes. Rotate it once halfway through. Then check your crust is dry and formed. Then you can remove the foil and the weights and cook it for another seven to eight minutes.
0: Well, I trust Christopher implicitly, so I'll have to give this whole routine a try. It is a lot of time in the freezer and the fridge, but I am so done with a slumping crust. Yeah. I will report back.
1: You know, while it's all really good and, frankly, fascinating to hear the science lessons behind, you know, why things work and why they don't and what everyone says you must try, Stefan, I think you and I tend to come down on the side of good old kitchen magic. (laughs) And
0: sometimes we don't know why something works, Mm. but it
1: does. And that's what matters.
0: So whether you use your grandma's old recipe that calls for vinegar and egg yolks, or a highly sophisticated modern test kitchen version that wouldn't be the same without vodka, if it works for you, it works. Remember, we'll have links to both of our favorite pie crust recipes, as well as the short video on blind baking from Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, and the fascinating article on pie crust science from Serious Eats, in the show sheets for this episode, which is episode 111.
1: Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. Every week on Monday mornings, we drop a new episode, and so we hope you'll join us next week. That's when we'll see if our fresh pear pie should reclaim its All-American title. And we'll introduce a new entry into one of our favorite pie categories, a desperation pie that's got chocolate and oatmeal and is said to rival a pecan pie for taste and flavor. We'll also talk about the essential tools you need for pie success. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please do tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington.
0: And I'm Stefan Cohn in London.
1: Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.